his son. systematic as I would have liked to have been and clear, I don't think. Um, and so let's just do a little bit of a review. It might help us um, for a second. The catechism itself is divided into four parts. What are those parts? What's the first part of the catechism? The creed. Okay, what's the next part? The sacraments. What's the next part? The morals or the Ten Commandments, right? And prayer. prayer, which covers what prayer? Oh. Our Father is the model prayer, okay? Um, why is it laid out in that order? <laughs> I got you guys. Why is it laid out in that order? Exactly. It's laid out in the ancient format prepared for the catechumen. Those entering into the church would need to know what they're going to believe. They would need to receive the sacraments and learn about them, right? And then once the sacraments are given, they can then live the, the Christian life, the Ten Commandments, the morals, and the height of that Christian life is our communication with God. Okay, so it's all laid out in that format. Before that whole four part, which we're probably not even going to get to in this series, but not to worry, I'm not going anywhere, so we're going to do Catechism 101 in like five years. Um, <laughs> Before that whole thing starts, the Catechism has a little preface. And that's what we were covering last time. We continue to cover that today. Um, there's, a, there's a very general preface in the beginning, kind of how to use the book. And then after that, it covers um, kind of a general introduction to the faith. Okay, And that general introduction to the faith is what we're covering now. It goes from... Oh, paragraph 26, remember we do all paragraphs, to paragraph one, what did I tell you guys, 170? 175, and then if you notice, if you turn to 175, after 175, there's in brief. At the end of each chapter, there's always an in brief, which is nice if you're taking a class and you need to go and pretend as though you read your homework. Okay? Um, but in this preface, in this beginning part, there's a division of three sections. First of all, um, our search for God on what level? Yeah. On the natural level. Okay, and uh, as the Catechism says, the tradition has, um, has always held, and the scriptures also say, we learn about God through what? Two ways. Just on a natural source, apart from his divine revelation, his incense, extra special revelation, there's a natural revelation, right? Yeah, creation or nature. And one that really goes with that, but they put it in a separate, because it, 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 it's above and beyond even, even the natural world, that we're seeing the material world, I should say, that we see, is what? What's the second way we learn about God? What's that? 
man that tells us something about God. That we look at man, and what do we see in man? Yeah, all right, we're in the image of likeness, and which in some ways it talks about man's spiritual part, his soul. Okay? That there's something to man that is more than just the material. Okay? In fact, there's more to the material world than just, in a sense, all these things, even trees, have a spiritual aspect about them. Okay? Um, in fact, St. Thomas calls it a material soul. Okay? Um, but in man, there's something even more that we see in his spiritual capacity to love and to know. Okay? And, and on a natural level, you could say, look, I could take a man, I could cut him up into pieces, and I would never find that part, which is his spiritual soul. At some point, the soul would separate itself from the body when the body could no longer be united to the soul. But at no point would I say, there it is, I finally found the cell, or I finally found the organ, or whatever it is. There's something more about man, and that spiritual aspect tells us that there's a spiritual world, an immaterial world. Okay, And so all of creation, as the scriptures say, uh, sing out the glory of God. And if we have eyes to see, we begin at that level to follow him, to be amazed by him. I remember there's a beautiful section at the beginning of St. Augustine's Confessions where he talks about God's existence, and he talks about creation, he says, how is it, O Lord, that you know, the, you're uncontainable, and yet you're contained within Christ? How is it that you come within me, and yet you're everywhere? And he's, he's at that stage where he's just struggling with the beauty of God as it's being revealed on a natural level to him. Okay, I remember reading that section. I was so blown away. I couldn't believe it. And I took it to my... I was teaching a CCD class. The first CCD class, I was like an assistant. And uh, they were like second graders or something. I started reading it. And I was like, what? But anyways. Alright. So this preface talks about the search for God. And then God's response to man's search... Divine revelation. Okay? Divine revelation. And within divine revelation, the, the catechism divides divine revelation into two parts. What are those two parts? <coughs> Scripture and tradition. Okay? So we're going to talk about that in just a minute. Uh, and finally, what's the third part? Once God reveals himself to us, man does what? Responds in faith. And so there's a third section on faith. Okay? And that's all within the preface. And so that's our goal. That was my goal for last class. Now it's our goal for the, for the whole series. Uh, and, um, and so we're just going to look at this because it's kind of the microcosm of man's spiritual journey. Okay? It's, it, we get a little, a little grasp of what the church teaches about man's spiritual journey. Okay, and then the catechism then goes further and in depth on all these areas. Regarding uh, the natural revelation okay, of creation, of nature, of man's soul, the catechism talks it says there's two there's two reasons why man struggles with coming to knowledge about God. I mean, what can we respond? Well, if God 
wanted us to learn about him through creation, he did a pretty bad job because a lot of people don't know about him. Okay? So the Catechism deals with this. And, and so there's two reasons why a man struggles to come to know God. It just simply by nature, by seeing creation on a natural level apart from grace, even though creation in a sense is a grace of God, a gift of God. What are those two reasons? Take a guess. Sin and what else? No. What else? No, it's not a bad thing, actually. It's our senses. That our senses are so tied to the material world that we struggle to transcend the material world into the spiritual world. Okay? I'll give you an example. Think about an angel. Close your eyes. Think about an angel. What do you think about just now? Flying. What else? Give me a description. Wings. A picture of it. We are so tied to the material world that even when we try to think about immaterial things, we have to constantly explain them in a material way. This even goes for God. We'll talk about that in a second. Okay, turn your Bible to Romans chapter uh, Romans chapter 1. Speaking about the problem of sin and our coming to know God. Romans chapter 1. I just, believe it or not, I did break down. I got five Bibles for us. They're in the back. So if anybody needs a Bible, anybody need a Bible? Okay. All right. All right. But if you forget sometime, you can come and get one beforehand. Don't forget to. Chapter 1, verse 18. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Steve, you want to read that for us? Chapter 1, verse 18. Nice and loud, nice and loud. The wrath of God is indeed being revealed from heaven against every divided and wickedness of those who suppress the truth by their wickedness. But what can be known about God is evident to them, because God made it evident to them. Ever since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes of eternal power and divinity have been able to be understood and perceived in the way they made. As a result, they have no excuse. For although they knew God, they did not accord him glory as God giving thanks. Instead, they became vain in their reason, and their senseless minds were darkened. While claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the likeness of an image of a mortal man or a bird or a four-legged animal or a snake. Therefore, God handed them over to impurity to the lust of their hearts for the mutual degradation of their bodies. Okay. All right. So, again, verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Ever since the creation of the world, his invisible nature, namely his eternal power and beauty, has been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. Okay? So, again, just reinforcing that from Scripture, that we can come to know God simply through creation. Okay? We come to know a lot about God through creation. Turn to your catechism to paragraph 38.
not only about those things that exceed his understanding, but also about those religious and moral truths which of themselves are not beyond the grasp of human reason. Okay, what are those religious and moral truths? The passage is talking about our conscience. That man knows by nature what to do. Okay, and yet he struggles to do them. So that, so that even in the present condition of the human race, they can be known by all men with ease, with firm certainty, and with no admixture of error. That's a key phrase that comes up all the time in theology, that God reveals himself in a special way to man okay, through scripture and through tradition. He reveals himself in a special way so that all men can come to know him with ease. Because why? Because otherwise, if we had to rely upon our own smarts, then who would be better off? The real smart guys. Okay? Um, known by all men with ease, with firm certainty, absolutely, instead of having to guess, having to deal with our sins, having to guess with, the, with, with our own problems, our own sin. Okay? And with no admixture of error. Turn your, your Bibles to uh, the book of Wisdom. Wisdom is basically right in the middle of your Bible. It follows Psalms and Proverbs. So if you find Psalms, go to Proverbs and then Wisdom. Wis wisdom chapter 13. The Catechism goes on to talk about our description of God. How we talk about God. And what do you think it's going to say? Based upon our knowledge of God, how do we go and talk about God? Annie. Oh, come on. Yes. Based upon the, the, the revelation which God has given us through creation and nature, when we go to talk about Him, how are we going to talk about Him? In a natural way, right? Giving all sorts of attributes to God that are found in nature. Okay? And that's exactly what Wisdom chapter 13 talks about. Wisdom chapter 13, the wisdom of Solomon. Mm -hmm. If you find Psalms, go to Proverbs and then Wisdom. Jennifer, you want to read that for us? Nice and loud. For all men who were ignorant of God were foolish by nature, and they were unable from the good things that are seen to know him who exists. Nor did they recognize the craftsman while paying heed to his works, but they supposed that either fire or wind or swift air or the circle of the stars, or turbulent water, or the luminaries of heaven, were the gods that ruled the world. If through delight in the, if through delight in the beauty of these things, men assumed them to be gods, let them know how much better than these is their Lord, for the Author of beauty created them. And if men were amazed at their power and working, let them perceive from them how much more powerful is He who formed them. For from the greatest beauty of created things comes the corresponding perception of the Creator. Yet these men are little to be blamed for, for perhaps they go astray while seeking God and desiring to find Him. For as they live among His works, works, they keep searching, and they trust in what they see, because the things that are seen are beautiful. Yet again, not even they are to be excused. For if they had the power to know so much that they could invest, investigate the world, how did they fail to find it sooner than Lord of these things? Okay, now look at verse 5 again. For from the greatness and beauty of created things comes a cor corresponding perception of their creator. Okay? 
a corresponding perception of their creator from the greatness and beauty of created things. And so man begins to describe God according to creation. Okay? And there's a, although there's something good in that, there's also a danger. Okay? That man begins, instead of looking, in fact, that, that, um, the text talks about this um, in verse 4. If, if men were amazed at their power and working, let them perceive from them how much more powerful is he who formed them. And so the error that creeps in is that instead of that, man begins to bring God down to his level and start to describe God and put God, in a sense, within this limited experiential box which he has. Okay? He becomes much more comfortable to me if I can fully know him, if I can place his limits around him according to my own mind. So that I become the one who controls God instead of God being the one who controls me, okay, or knows me. Um, paragraph 42 in the Catechism brings out this point a little further, and I think it's helpful for us as we're beginning our read through the Catechism kind of understand the place that we're in when we're talking about divine things. God transcends all creatures. We must therefore continually purify our language of everything in it that is limited, image-bound, or imperfect. If we are not to confuse our image of God, the inexpressible and incomprehensible, the invisible, the ungraspable, with our human re representations, our human words always fall short of the mystery of God. Jennifer, can you continue that? Admittedly, in speaking about God like this, our language is using human modes of expression. Nevertheless, it really does attain to God himself, though unable to express him in, the, in his infinite simplicity. Likewise, we must recall that between creator and creature, no similitude can be expressed without implying an even greater dissimilitude. And that concerning God, we cannot grasp what he is, but only what he is not, and how other things stand in relation to him. Okay. So, we've, we kind of walk this balancing line. Can we speak truly about God when we're describing him in human terms? Is it possible? No. no. Ah. God reveals himself to us as Father. Yeah, and King David used numerous metaphors of the Psalms. Yes. I trust in the shadow of thy waves. Right. And in fact, in the next section we're going to talk about on divine revelation, that is the very reality of divine revelation, is that God descends to our level to reveal himself to us in a way that we can understand. Okay, so there it is good, and there is truth in describing God according to the beauty of creation that we see, and yet there's also a danger and a, a, a possibility of falling easily into error. Let me give you an example. In the Bible, God is spoken of as perfectly just. Oftentimes, we take that understanding of justice, apply it to our own understanding of justice, and then we impose our understanding of justice upon God. Okay? And unfortunately, our understanding of justice is very lacking in God's understanding of justice, as our understanding of anything is very lacking in comparison to God's understanding of it. Our understanding of love 
our understanding of what it means to be a father. It is a true thing to say that God is father. And yet, if I say that God is bound by my own conception of fatherhood, that's where I fall into error. It's true to give attributes of fatherhood to God. The good things about, yes, we can say that God is a loving father, as true fathers always love their children. That's true. And yet, it does not grasp the fullness of who God is as father. Does that make sense? Okay, so we want this line, kind of almost a dangerous line, and that's we rely then upon his revelation to us. Okay? In the next section, the Catechism goes on to talk about that exact thing, God's revelation. That was, it was on the board before. God's revelation in response to our searching. Yes, paragraph number 15. Jennifer, you're just going to be our, our, our reader tonight. Thanks. It's easier for me. Chapter 2, God comes to meet man. By natural reason, man can know God with certainty on the basis of his works. But there is another order of knowledge, which man cannot possibly arrive at by his own powers, the order of divine revelation. Through an utterly free decision, God has revealed himself and given himself to man. This he does by revealing the mystery of his plan of loving goodness, formed from all eternity in Christ for all the benefit of men, for the benefit of all men. God has fully revealed his plan by sending us his beloved Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. God reveals his plan of loving goodness. Okay, hold on. Sorry. I didn't register the paragraph. So when God reveals himself, what does the catechism say he reveals? He, yes, he reveals himself, but when that revelation comes to man, it comes to man in the form of what? Yeah, but it says it right there in the paragraph. Uh, right after that footnote number one, you see through an utterly free decision, in the middle of the paragraph, through an utterly free decision, God has revealed himself and given himself to man. This he does, so this revelation he does, by revealing the mystery. And what is the mystery? His plan of loving goodness. Okay? Divine revelation to man comes in the form of God's plan. God's plan for man. Okay? And what is that plan for man? It's spoken of a little bit in that paragraph, but the next paragraph deals with it a little more explicitly. Go ahead, Jennifer. It pleased God in his goodness and wisdom to reveal himself and to make known the mystery of his will. His will was that men should have access to the Father through Christ, the Word made flesh, and the Holy Spirit, and thus become sharers in the divine nature. God, who dwells in an unfortunate okay. life... Sorry. She's used to the Bible thing where I make you keep reading. Don't worry. You can stop the paragraphs of the Catechism. Okay. All right. So what is his plan? So we become sharers Yeah. Remember I wrote that on the board last time. That's because I thought we were going to get to this point last time. In the divine nature. We become sharers in the divine nature. I told you last time that that is the key that will unlock the entire Catechism to you. Maybe it won't reveal it explicitly, make it all clear and fine, but it is the key which will begin to help you understand all of the aspects of the faith. If we understand what God has designed for us, what he wants for us, then we can begin to ask, well, what does baptism have to do with that? Because if God brought us baptism, if he wants us to be baptized, it's in order that we may become what? 
shares in the divine nature. If he wants to give us Holy Communion, it's so that we may become sharers in the divine nature. If he wants us to pray, Our Father, it is because he wants us to become sharers in the divine nature. He wants us to become his children. Okay? Just like a human father has a human child, so a divine father has given us the gift to make us divine children. Shares in the divine nature. Every aspect of the faith is unlocked by that key. And that's why right here at the beginning of the catechism, it makes note of that. It may note of it in the last section, it'll make note of it in the next section, and it'll keep hammering it home over and over and over again. We will look at that phrase in scripture and in the catechism six million different ways. Okay? It's just saying the same thing over and over and over again. So that plan becomes the reference point for everything that we have Absolutely, everything. You want to understand why we pray for others and why we can talk about intercessors in the spiritual life? It's because we're partaking in the divine nature. Why is it that we are called to bring the gospel to others? Because I'm partaking in God's nature. And therefore, I'm to do what God does. Okay? All aspects of the faith come back to this. I, I mentioned to you guys last time, the problem with normal catechesis is that we stop at 8th grade or at confirmation or something like that, and we stop learning the faith. And so we're left with an infantile understanding. A true understanding, but not a complete understanding, or not a fuller understanding, not the understanding which God wants us to have. Those catechisms for children take what is meant for adults, like this, and they simplify it down. Okay, just like if I want to teach my daughter how to cook, I don't teach her something completely other than cooking, I start to make it simple for her. And she begins by putting a few ingredients in and making a simple thing. Maybe it's actually jello. Okay, or pop popcorn, right? These are true ways of cooking, but they're very simple. And later on, she can learn how to make all the other great foods that I love to make. Okay? When you were studying the Baltimore Catechism, you remember, God made us to what? That's fantastic. Now you memorized something, but also, well, maybe some of you have, but I know I found myself as I was starting to mature in the faith. Not that I'm really <laughs> mature in the faith, but as I started to mature in the faith, that I started to reflect upon those things and realize that my understanding pretty much stopped with that. Okay, the church tells me to know, love, and serve God. Great. And it stopped at the point of memorization. And unfortunately, if it stops at that point, we won't continue in our journey with Christ. Okay? What does it mean to know? I've taught you about it a hundred times. What is knowledge? Become united. Yeah, become united with. As Aristotle says, the Aristotle. Uh, um, knowledge is the union between the knower and the known. Okay, knowledge is the union between. Knowledge is the union between the knower and the known. You are to come to know God, and when you come to know God, 
you will be united with what you know. You will become sharers in the divine nature, partakers in the divine nature. Partakers in the divine nature is a little heavy duty for like a, you know, five-year-old to grasp, or whatever, seven-year-old to grasp. But you, but you can memorize the formula. But unfortunately, stop with that memorization of formula. Love, okay? Love is our desire for the thing we know, which makes us reach out for a fuller and more complete union with that thing or with that person. So when I say to come to know, that's not enough. A lot of people know things about God and are heretics. Okay? I must love him. I must reach out to him. I must desire him so that my union becomes ever more complete. And once I have a loving union with him, I will begin to realize who I am in his image and likeness. Once I start to see him truly, I will then begin to see myself truly. And being in the image and likeness of God, I know that God loves creation and desires its good. And part of the service of God is to love our neighbor, to reach out to all of creation and bring it to perfection in God. And so you see how when we stop at eighth grade, it's a true understanding, but it's very much incomplete. So as we begin to work our way through the catechism, we'll be again and again run into these phrases that we know from childhood, but now it's time to start to make those ideas grow within us. Okay? That was Paul's message in 1 Corinthians when he talked about the gifts of the Revelation and 1 Corinthians 13, where at the end of 12 he says, and so I'll show you a better way. Right. Right. Yeah, St. Paul was listening to me, of course. Um, I mean, the catechism is simply putting together the catechesis of St. Paul. So we're going to, it's absolutely true. We can go right through St. Paul, we can go right through the Gospels, and we can see the catechism is simply attempting to repeat what, it, what has always been taught and repeat it in a way that we can now understand it 2,000 years later. Okay, purifying the language or whatever you want to call purifying, to make it intelligible to us, okay? Um, the Catechism goes on to talk about God's revelation of himself throughout salvation history. and talks about a number of figures, okay? And it, while talking about these figures in salvation history, make, makes a point that's very helpful and also probably pretty clear to us, and that is that salvation history is a matter of a continual revelation of God. In a sense, it's the man's journey of becoming. We talked about that last time. The fulfillment of his capacity to know God. Even with Adam, Adam was made in the image and likeness of God, and yet he had a fuller perfection. Okay, That he would bring his own intellect and will into through free choice, into union with his creator. Okay, all of salvation history kind of follows that pattern. After the fall, what, what men do we meet? What's, give, me a, give me a lineup of salvation history, the great men of salvation history, as God revealed himself to them. Oh, Noah. Noah. Uh, before Noah. Abraham. Abraham. Before Abraham. 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 Standing up here. All right, Adam. Who was Adam's son? Cain. 
Salvation History Course again. What's that? Joseph. No. Noah. Okay. And for Noah? Seth or or who? Who's Seth? receives the covenantal blessing. Right? And from Judah? Perez. Perez. Alright, Perez. Alright, he's kind of weird. We don't know too much about him. Alright, it was another great man. Solomon. David, yes. King David and then Solomon and and then the prophets of what? Of the schism in Israel? Remember the break between the north and the south? Right? And then, who? All the way through the prophets. Remember? Moses actually isn't in that firstborn son line. So I'm just saying that firstborn line. All the way to Christ. Okay? All of these great men of the Old Testament prepared the way for the coming of Christ, giving a continual further revelation of God until we come to Jesus Christ.
God buoyed man up with the hopes through the prophets. Okay, preparing the way for the coming of his son. So all through the Old Testament, we have this revelation, continual revelation given. Look at paragraph 61. Again, it's a little bit of a side note. The patriarchs and prophets and certain other Old Testament figures have been and always will be honored as saints in all the church's liturgical traditions. Okay, that breaks continuity. What's that? That breaks continuity. Breaks continuity? Breaks continuity. It brings continuity. Yeah. When's the last time when's the last time you invoked St. Anthony in your prayer? When's the last time you invoked St. Elijah, St. Moses, St. Abraham, St. Adam? You know, in the, old, in the old calendar, there was an optional feast for the, for the commemoration of Saints Adam and Eve on December 24th, the day before the birth of the new Adam. Okay? What's that? What's that? I'm seeing in the old calendar, the old Roman calendar, there is an optional feast on December 24th. Okay? It's beautiful. Don't be afraid to invoke the saints of the church. And they don't just include St. Anthony and the Blessed Virgin Mary. They include the entire list of Old Testament holy people. Okay? And in fact, when the, for the blessing of the cards in the Belkhaven, uh, tradition probably was the blessing of, I don't know, horses back in the old days or something. They invoke St. Elijah, okay, because he was taken up in the flaming chariot to heaven, okay? And so, yeah, it's beautiful. Um, hold on, I'm lost in my notes. Paragraph 61, yes, we just did that. Moses, the prophets, good. Paragraph 65. Quoting Hebrews um, chapter 1, in fact, it's a good lesson in paragraph 65. In many and various ways God spoke of old to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. Look at the footnote. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. So again, if you want to push that further, you want to go over there and read the text itself. Okay? Christ, the Son of God, made man, is the Father's one perfect and insurpassable word. In him he has said everything. There will be no other word than this. St. John of the Cross, among others, comments strikingly on Hebrews chapter 1. Jennifer. In giving us his Son, his only word, for he possesses no other, he spoke everything to us at once in the soul word, and he has no more to say. Because what he spoke before to the prophets in parts, he has now spoken all at once by giving us the all who is his son. Any person questioning God or desiring some vision or revelation would be guilty not only of foolish behavior, but also of offending him by not fixing his eyes entirely upon Christ and by living with the desire for some other novelty. Okay. Christ is the fullness of revelation. He is the word of God. Why is that? Why is that? Why is that? Because he's God himself. That's right. He is God's eternal word, which he speaks, which God speaks from all eternity. What was written on stone in the Old Testament 
is written on the heart of Christ. He is the Old Testament. He is the Ten Commandments. He is the Word made flesh. The Ten Commandments in the Old Testament, oftentimes we think of the Old Testament and the commandments as kind of this kind of Old Testament kind of God who's like dictatorial and wants to hold man, do this and do this and do this. It's not that at all. The Old Testament and the covenants are God's way of telling man how to be happy. Just like I've, told, I've said this to you guys before. You buy a new car, you get the manual. If you follow the instructions in the manual, the car is going to work. If you don't, the car is not going to work. If you put gasoline in the oil spot, it's going to die, right? The Old Testament commandments were simply that. God's instruction to man of how to live happy, how to be good, how to flourish, how to be a human being the way a human being was made to be. God's the one that built the human being, just like the guy who builds the car knows how the car is supposed to run. Similarly, God is the one who tells us how we're supposed to run. Okay? However, we didn't always follow God's commandments. Okay? We did not seek happiness. And therefore, God sent his only son, the will of God made flesh, so that now in Christ, in a man, God's commandments would be perfectly fulfilled. That God could now look at a man in the person of Jesus Christ and see man made in the image and likeness of God. So can you have some fight down for me? Tell them I'm going to write your names on the board and bug you guys. chapter behind us is point six is paragraph 67 which pushes this this point a little bit further and is I think quite helpful for us today for Catholics in general throughout the ages there have been so-called private revelations some of which have been recognized by the authority of the church they do not belong however to the deposit of faith there's a couple of terms there that you need to know public revelation is what What's that? Well, it's, just, it's basically Christ. Okay, he's the public revelation. Okay, given to us in two forms in Scripture and tradition. Okay, that's right. And private revelation, which is what? Yeah, they're like the far out experiences the holy people have. Right? They're the visions which holy people have, and that's what they're talking about here. This is the deposit of faith, that which was given through Christ to the apostles and ended with the death of John the Evangelist, with the death of the last apostle. Okay? Is it possible for private revelation to continue? Is it possible for God to reveal himself to somebody? It, it, it should be. It should be. One day it will be normal in everyone's life. But that doesn't surpass. Yeah, okay, yes, that is true. In some way, each of us have a particular relationship with God who reveals himself, who, who has a communion with each person in a different manner, in a unique manner. Okay, but really, 
properly speaking, private revelation are those revelations which have been revealed to holy people throughout history, okay, and have been authenticated by the church. Okay, give me an example. Fatima. No, not the Assumption of Blessed Virgin Mary. Okay, I will, we'll talk about that in a second. All right, paragraph 67. Through the ages, there have been so-called private revelations, some of which have been recognized by the authority of the church. They do not belong, however, to the deposit of faith. It is not their role to improve or complete Christ's definitive revelation, but to help live more fully by it in a certain period of history. Guided by the magisterium of the church, the census fideum knows how to discern and welcome in these revelations. Okay, our sense of faith, it's a technical theological term. Welcome in these revelations, whatever constitutes an authentic call of Christ or his saints to the church. Okay? It is not their role to improve or complete Christ's definitive revelation, but to help live more fully by it in a certain period of history. Okay? I bring that up because what happens sometimes, unfortunately? What's the problem that happens to some people? Well, yeah, that is a problem. <laughs> Have you ever met somebody that's more caught up in Fatima than they are in the Mass? Yes. Yeah. More caught up in um, whatever. Measure, uh, well, measure, that's that small other issue. Divine Mercy Chaplain, okay, than they are in Jesus Christ. Or, well, not even put those two things on side by side, but you understand what I'm saying. We're so caught up, off sometimes, we can get so caught up in a private revelation that we begin to play, put it in the place of public revelation. And if somebody doesn't adhere their life or strictly follow that private revelation, suddenly we look at them as a second class citizen. Okay? Or somebody who really doesn't know the faith. Jesus Christ is the fullness of revelation. These other private revelations can be helpful in a given time in history to certain people. Helpful in which way? They can help to further our understanding of public revelation. The Divine Mercy Chapel is a prime example of that. The Divine Mercy Chapel is a great help to understand the mystery of God, the mercy of God. And yet, the mercy of God is fully revealed to us in Jesus Christ through Scripture and tradition. Okay? Does that make sense? Any questions about that? I've seen people at Mass sometimes that will go to Mass and they're like going and turning on uh, devotional can uh, golden candles while the Mass is going on. So that would be an example, right? Yeah, I guess. Yes and no. Is it possible that we can that the two can be side by side? Absolutely. It sure they can. In fact, when I, I use this with my daughter all the time, is she's in the church because in our church we have tons of candles like on every wall, anywhere you turn, and there's big icons of like gold and things that kids just love. So, like during the sermon or something, I might walk her around to the icons and have her, you know, it's Jesus, and she'll kiss the icon, or, you know, light a candle, or whatever it is. And so... No, I understand okay. that, but I'm okay. talking about, like, people when the Mass is going on, and you'll yeah. have the Lord. Yeah, to sign things. Yeah, but I mean, that is, it is an example, but I'm saying that I don't want to condemn that outright. There's maybe a place for that. In fact, historically in the church, 
a lot of people did that. And that, that's what the bells were for in the old days. Okay? Calling everybody's attention. Guys, get back up here. The most important parts are about to take place. Okay? Um, uh, or or uh, turn toward the Lord or uh, lift up your hearts. Okay? To an exchange, exchangeable terms. Lift up your hearts in the, uh, at certain points in the, in the history of the liturgy. Um, it's recorded for us that the priest said, turn towards the Lord. Okay? And it says, come on, everybody, get back up here. Okay? Now is the most important time and gather your thoughts and, and come together. So I mean, there's a place which you're right. You can also get sidetracked. Okay? Praying the rosary during Mass. Wait a minute. I unite mine with the Pope. My yeah, perfect that, prayer with the perfect prayer of the Holy Spirit. Right. That's what I'm saying. Is that this, the things can work together, and yet we have to be careful that the private revelations given to St. Faustina or at Fatima or at Lourdes or whatever don't take the place of the public revelation given once for all in Jesus Christ. Okay? This is not something new in the history of, of God's revelation to man. You know the serpent that was lifted up on a pole? Yeah. Yeah. In the, given by God for the healing of Israel. But what happened to that serpent after that whole thing took place? What happened to it? Does anyone know? It was kept in the temple. It was taken when the temple was built. It was kept in there. And later on in scriptures revealed that it actually began to be an enticement to Israel that was using it like an idol. Okay? And so it became, it, 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 it was not helpful at that point. Okay? Notice the things. It's helpful to further reveal a particular aspect and within a given time. Okay? I'll freak you guys out with something. I don't read the rosary. I don't read the rosary because I'm Melkite. And in the, Mel in the Eastern churches, the rosary has never spread over there. We have all sorts of other devotions, like the Akathist hymn to Our Lady, okay, which are just as beautiful, or I might say more beautiful, uh, and they're helps in the faith. But again, they have their own place. The rosary is never going to save my soul. Jesus Christ will save my soul. Okay. Does Mary have her place? Absolutely. Okay. You understand what I'm saying? Any questions, problems? No? Okay, good. Um, Alright. Divine revelation is given to us in, um, well, in, a, in a number of forms. If you look at paragraph 74, speaking about the transmission of divine revelation. God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Well, what does that require? Jesus Christ lived among us 2,000 years ago in a particular place in the world. What was necessary if all men were to come to know God? What was necessary? Exactly. Well, look at that. It's right at the beginning of the article. That's why we're talking about it. Okay. Turn to Acts chapter 1. Chapter 1. We'll do this one section and call it good for today. Acts chapter 1, verse 15. You remember the story um, just before Pentecost. It's talking about the replacement of Judas. Okay, and what were the apostles to do? Were they to replace him? Was another one to be brought into his place? And they're discussing this. 
Okay. Um, verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the brethren. The company of persons was in all was in all about 120, and said, "Brethren, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas." who was guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man bought a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their language, Akeldamah, Damah, Akeldamah, something like that. That is field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his habitation become desolate, and let there be no one to live in, and his office let another take. No, so one, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the, until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Lord, who knowest the hearts of all men, show which one of these two thou hast chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was enrolled with the eleven apostles. Okay, so there is a, a continuation uh, in the work of Jesus Christ through the apostles. And when the apostles died, one was brought to take their place so that all men might receive the divine revelation of God. That all men might, be, might come to know him. St. Irenaeus, in his work against the heresy, says, In order that the full and living gospel might always be preserved in the church, the apostles left bishops as their successors. They gave them their own position of teaching authority. You remember our Lord says, Go out and teach all nations, baptizing them in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay? So they invested these men with their own teaching authority to go out and do what they were enrolled to do. Turn to 2 Timothy with me. You can see this in another aspect. The epistle to Timothy. Right? If you go to the book of Revelation, all the way here, your Bible and go backwards, that's probably the easiest way for you to find it. Okay? John, you have Peter, Hebrews, and then Timothy. Sorry, 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy. Second Timothy. What does that look for? So then, my son, be strong in the grace that. I'm sorry. I'm not you guys. Sorry. Second Timothy chapter two. Sorry about that. Second Timothy chapter two. Go ahead, Carrie. Chapter two, verse one. Verse one and two. So again, you see that handing on of what had been received by the apostles through Jesus Christ. 
okay, that all men might come, might come to know the Lord. Again, in 3 John, go back towards the book of Revelation. These are probably epistles you've never even seen before, some of you, I don't know. 3 John, look how small 3 John is, it's one chapter. It's right before the book of Revelation, as you have Jude and John. Two very, very short uh, epistles. Oh. Hold on. Scriptures for us. 
Okay? It may have been written down uh, implicitly in the scripture by saying, see aspects of it, but it's really what was handed on orally, okay? That it's called tradition. And that word of mouth is then divided, we can say, into two. Okay? Tradition, big T tradition, capital T tradition. Okay? speaks about that divine revelation itself, that which we must hold fast to. Give me an example of that. The incarnation? No. Why? It's in scripture. We're talking about what is handed on orally. Okay? Alright. Um, in scripture. There's, you can maybe argue a few points here and there, but nothing explicit. What's that? The Immaculate Conception. Again, referenced here and there in scripture, but really given through tradition, handed on from the apostles and seen throughout salvation, or throughout history, the history of the church, as the saints have written about it. Okay? Give me a small, an example of small T tradition. What's that? Just something written? No, not necessarily. I mean, it could be written down. Something they did. A small T tradition would be, for example, the way the mass is celebrated. The way the mass is celebrated. Small T tradition always goes about explaining or showing forth big T tradition. Okay. Small T tradition is changeable. It is always at the service of this, of the big T tradition. Always at the service of the big T tradition. It's changeable in this sense. Is that it's always the purifying of how to explain the faith given orally. Okay? So the way of the Mass is celebrated. Okay? It is alterable, alterable, changeable. Okay? In order to better serve the reality of the Mass, which is Jesus Christ, the Eucharist. Okay? Yes? Is that similar to, you know, um, disciplinary? Yeah, disciplinary. Yeah, I guess, yes, yeah, kind of, yeah. Okay? It's a little bit further than it's not just disciplinary, though, like, you've got to go to Mass every Sunday, although that's an aspect of it, or you got to receive communion once you're made, that's a better example. Okay? You say that's disciplinary, and that's not quite what you say small-t tradition. Okay, like small tea tradition is something that definitely is handed on. Okay? Yes. So small tea then the purview of the magisterium? Yes, absolutely. The what? The purview is under the it's under the guidance of the magisterium. Okay. And is that part of private revelation being validated by the church for for a purpose? No, 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 not really. It's not speaking of private revelation, because okay. small t tradition always at the service of that greater tradition, and it's always something handed on from the from the earliest days. Okay? I'll, I'll conclude with this point. It's regarding the mass being changeable or alterable or whatever you want to call it. The catechism, I'm not going to point to it right now, but in paragraph 1125 says, all right, fine, go to it. Oh, I promise. I promise. <laughs> 1125. 1125. Is this, it is helpful to us. 
For this reason, no sacramental right may be modified or manipulated the will of the minister of the community. Even the supreme authority in the church, the Holy Father, may not change the liturgy arbitrarily, but only in the obedience of faith and with religious respect for the mysteries of the liturgy. Okay? So, alright, so we are, the, the magisterium, the church is bound, is always at the service of the word of God, it's always at the service of the word of God, okay, always explaining to us in ever better terms that revelation, always showing forth that revelation better. So, can the, can the mass be trimmed? Can it grow organically in order to better show forth an aspect of the faith? Yes. Okay? Which happens 11.25. 11.25. And that's why the Holy Father is brought with his motu proprio back to Treasure Mass saying, look, this is something that helps us understand the mystery of the Eucharist. It doesn't hurt us. Okay? Let's conclude with